นโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะบุตังธรรมังสังขังนมะสามีIt's an idea we have right now. It feels like this. No doubt, when we finish and go to our respective places, it'll be an idea, a memory, and it'll be a different way. What is the retreat? What is anything in our life? So we're encouraged to explore, use the experience that we have. And the Buddha encouraged us to particularly focus on our physical and mental experience, body and the mind, using various categories to help us learn for ourselves about what's happening and why. You know, it wasn't to uh, try to create a religion or discover. New philosophies, or even to gain intellectual knowledge, because all that just disappears when we die, or get Alzheimer's, or hit our heads, eat too much candy. It changes, doesn't it? Moment to moment, we can be smart or dumb. We can have a larger world or a smaller world. So we're encouraged to, or invited, by the Buddha, and encouraged to learn about our lives, learn about our experience, because there is a possibility for a different way, a different way of being, a different way of experiencing all of this, which does not result in what is called dukkha. The kind of suffering which is there, even in happy experiences, the stress, the tension, the dissatisfaction, however we want to articulate it, there is discontentment on some level, even when we have what we want, isn't there? We know we'll die. We know we have to protect it. We know we can't control the conditions which are always changing and which will mean. This will change. If we're attached to this and looking to this for my happiness, then I'm going to suffer when it changes, unless I can control it to change into something even better. And so that's often what we're doing, without being very conscious of it. It's quite understandable. We, as conscious animals, you know, we we can reflect. We can. Do a lot more with our lives than just eat 
and sleep, and so we do. We create all kinds of things, good and bad. More things than squirrels create. You know, they eat, they sleep, they're conscious. But this is very limited, I imagine, I don't really know. But the evidence would seem to have it that it's a fairly limited experience. There's not much choice to break out of the cycle of desire, wanting to survive, wanting to get what feels good, wanting to procreate, wanting to, and whatever the the program is, different animals are different, and we're an animal too, but we have this capacity to reflect and do more with our lives than just live as an animal. So that's not a judgment against animals. It's a recognition that we have something different, something valuable and precious, and something which won't necessarily yield beneficial fruit unless we're conscious and wise about it. We can use these wonderful minds, these powerful minds, for, for great good and for great evil, for great terrible things. So we're encouraged to learn because there's a possibility of freedom. And that's not something that's recognized generally in the world, uh, in, in cultures. Many of the parts of the Buddhist teaching are, you know, be good, don't be bad. You'll have that in just most cultures, certainly most religions, if not all. Even concentrating the mind, using an object to train our attention, to keep it steady and experience some of that happiness and tranquility that can come from that. You'll find that in many different traditions and as well, not just religious, spiritual practice traditions, but athletes, um, rock climbing is probably, I don't know, I've never been interested to hang from a granite cliff by my fingernails. <laughs> but I can imagine that those who are addicted to such activities must be very concentrated when they're doing it. And so there's a sense of tapping into that potential that the mind has. And yet, you know, the Buddha did not teach rock climbing. But there you have it. You've got concentration practices in different disciplines, different religions at different times. So we're, we're encouraged, yes, use these skillful ways of living that uh, others have discovered and others uh, also recommend. Calm ourselves down so that we can see what's happening. Clear the obstructions to a heart which doesn't just calm down because it's been practicing a, an exercise of attention in a focused way, but one which calms down more deeply because of the way we've been living. We put down those things which create remorse. We stop hurting people. We stop hurting ourselves. We live in ways which are healthy, physically, mentally, psychologically, emotionally. And this allows our minds to calm down in a much more natural way. It's as much as uh, as a part of our, say, samadhi or uh, concentration practice as 
the usual kinds of concentration practices that we can pick up, focusing on an object to the exclusion of everything else. And yet, as most of us know who have done these practices, when we do put everything aside and pick up an object and decide to keep it as our sole object of attention and develop our concentration in that way, then the deepening that can result can really go a long way to to clearing things which otherwise would take a, a long time. And we can go deeper than we've ever touched before and that can be extremely valuable. It's so valuable that it can fool us sometimes because we go so deep or at least get such a nice taste of the possibilities of how we can feel just by working with our minds. We don't have to, you know, get the right kind of ice cream or coffee. We don't have to manipulate the outer conditions in order to feel so good. But we can actually just work with our mind internally without needing to manipulate the external conditions too much, need it to be quiet enough, need it to be safe enough. And then we can touch for ourselves these states of intense joy and clarity. And that has its value and was praised and encouraged by the Buddha. It also has its limitations and its particular dangers in the sense that we can mistake the path for the attainment of these states which come through concentration meditation. And other teachers at the time of the Buddha would teach these methods as well. And other traditions in the world now teach these methods as well. The Buddha said that the particular offering he brought to the equation at that time didn't exist, at least at that time, anywhere else. The particular defining characteristic of Buddhist practice is not just what happens when we concentrate our minds, not just what happens when we dedicate and fulfill our uh, lifestyle, our behavior, so that we are living and acting out of generosity, compassion, loving kindness, and feel the joy and benefit that comes from that but particularly when we develop insight into how the mind works, what the mind is. I say the mind, it's not just the mind, it's the mind and body. It's really us, who we are, what, what is happening here in our life, in our experience, and particularly in regards to what he called dukkha, this tension, this suffering, this innate, seemingly existential uh, worm in the apple, pee under the mattress. That which never allows us fully to be at rest, to be at peace. It seems existential, And we kind of assume that, well, this is the best we'll be able to do, so we should just do the best we can with finding the right conditions to be, feel as good as we can and be as happy as we can. And that's perfectly understandable and it's generally the way most of us live. But the Buddha encouraged us to look deeper so that we can start to 
investigate for ourselves what this tension is, what this dukkha, this suffering, really is. The suffering that's there when we feel unpleasant and is likewise there when we feel good. So the rec- the first noble truth, the first place that we start in the Buddhist teaching is a recognition of this. There is this suffering, seeing it. It's like coming out of denial. We may understand it long before we really recognize it to be true. Understanding it intellectually is, is good, but it's not really understanding it. Because we might say, yes, I can see, it all makes sense, and I have had some insights and intuitions, and so yes, I can see everything is dukkha. Makes sense. And yet still be living our lives in ways which are as if that wasn't the case. When I get what I want, I'll be happy. That's the program we are generally running on. And so whether we believe we're doing so or not, we're generally trying to get what we want, even if it becomes practicing meditation. So understanding the truth of suffering is is profound and necessary to the path. And it's something which, you know, like all of it, it happens in gradual deepenings. It won't just... Sometimes there can be an aha moment where it really does, the penny drops, and there's a significant and permanent shift. But generally, it's a matter of smaller and larger insights, and the result of a uh, continuity of commitment that we give ourselves to. Because this becomes more and more important to us, and it requires relinquishing other things which will distract us from it. So it's always involving some level of renunciation, of giving up things that we otherwise would do or be involved in, putting them down, both to simplify our lives so that we have the time and sort of both physical and and psychic space, so to speak, to give ourselves to this work, We renounce things to simplify our lives. We also renounce things to help us with this work. To not just make things more peaceful because we've stopped stimulating ourselves in unnecessary ways. It's not out of judgment of the things which we're giving up. It's not out of fear. It's out of seeing that there's a danger in just spending our lives distracted. And that there's an opportunity in putting these distractions down and focusing on the work of practice. And so it's out of that that we choose voluntarily to give up, you know, starting out with things which are causing harm, of course, so following the precepts, but refining that and maybe giving up more, giving up things which we notice are disturbing the mind. It may be different for each of us. It may be different for each one of us at different times putting down the media for a certain amount of time, putting down a certain activity, which in itself may not be bad, but 
by doing that, we notice our mind doesn't get stirred up and we have time. We have time to be peaceful with the present moment experience. Whether or not we have time to come on retreat or go to a monastery, whether or not even that we're practicing formal meditation, sitting, we have time to just be. And the more and more we value this, the more it makes sense to practice renunciation for this reason. But the other reason, again, is to help us with the practice because renunciation doesn't just help uh, by uh, making things more tranquil eventually. It helps by stirring things up too. It helps by turning up the pressure. We, when we give up things, we discover we have wants we didn't know we had. When we say, I won't have any snacks at all, I'll just have my, my defined meals a day. I mean, here we're having two meals, right? Breakfast and the midday meal. Let's forget about the confusing little things that come out at tea time. <laughs> but there's just <laughs> breakfast and the meal. And you can't just open the fridge and, you know, so say you go home, um, and maybe some of you are just, you know, you kind of, you can't get the fridge out of your mind, thinking, you know, when I get off retreat, ah, finally. It may not be food, maybe something else, but just as an example, okay, I'll just have breakfast, and I'll just have lunch, and maybe you'll just have dinner too, but nothing in between, no snacks, nothing else. There's nothing particularly moral about that. It's not like we need to go on a diet. It's not about health, although it is healthy generally to do that. But if you make that determination, the moment you make it, it's interesting, isn't it? Oh, well, actually, I could use a snack right now. (laughs) And usually it's easily done at first. But then once the pressure comes up in some other way, we might notice things we didn't notice before. That when there's tension of some kind, when we're feeling uncomfortable with ourselves, with someone else, with life in some way, oh, reach reach for the fridge. But nope, nope, can't do that. And so now we can't just dissipate that tension in that way because we're practicing renunciation. We've created an artificial voluntary boundary and now we bump up against it. And so in that way we have a chance to see the desire, to see the habit, to see the pattern that's there. And we want to see that because this work, the work of the path, to understand, recognize dukkha, understand what it is and understand our role in creating it as a way to be free from dukkha, that involves learning about how the mind, how the body, how it all works. So we come to a retreat like this and we practice meditation exercises. We choose an object, maybe the breathing, maybe the body posture, maybe something else. And we can use that object in different ways. And the classical Buddhist teachings sometimes divide those two ways. You hear about samatha and vipassana. Ultimately, these are just labels and different teachers, different traditions can use the same words to mean different things. There are generally, though, these two ways that one can work with, say, even the same meditation object. One, to focus in the way I was describing before, 
like the rock climbers, using, say, the breath to exclusively focus on sensations of breathing and allow everything else to recede so that the mind goes one-pointedly, but in a narrow way, focusing into that object. And that can create a wonderful sense of peace and really clear the brush away. That would be samatha or concentration meditation. And it can be a very integral, usually has to be at some point, an integral part of our practice. And then there's the way of using that same meditation object, that same breath, to help us practice concentration, but in a different way, where we're not narrowly focusing exclusively on the object, to the exclusion of everything else, where it becomes, you know, the mind and the object merge, so to speak, but rather keeping ourselves from doing that and using the object as a way to keep our attention, our awareness in the present moment. So we use it as a reference point, like an anchor. So the breath, breathing in this present moment, and we are also aware of the other things we may be aware of. Sitting on the cushion in this room and keeping the object we've chosen for our meditation practice, say the breath, in mind. In breath, we know we're breathing in and we're also sitting here. We know we're breathing out, we're also sitting here. It's a matter of staying with awareness, staying with awareness, staying with awareness, using the object to help us do that. So why? Why do that? Both will lead to a mind which is cleared of the usual um, problems of distraction that we've cultivated, just being torn away from what we're trying to do with our attention because we think of what we want for dinner tonight or what we're going to do next week or what somebody said last month or something. We're all generally getting uh, pulled into the worlds of our creation, sanya sankara, perception, mental fabrications, the various thoughts and memories we have pulled out through our senses. When we look at something, we just go right into that thing we're looking at. When we smell, we go right into what we're smelling. When we hear and taste, we go right into those things. And when we think we are in our thoughts, we, the body disappears. We're in a different world. We travel to different worlds, don't we? So how to stay here, watching, aware? We use a meditation object to help us do that. So we choose something. Say it's the breath, say it's the body posture. It can be anything that is easy enough and sort of you know, pleasant enough. We don't have to f- force ourselves to use an object that we find unpleasant just because we think we should. Or somebody said it was the best one. Find something we can like staying with. The feelings in your hands. Or opening your eyes and looking at a spot. Find some, something which is steady enough, which will be continuously in the present moment. It could be the repetition of a mantra. Buddha, Buddha, or something that we create ourselves. Peace, peace. But we use that not in this way of trying to dive in to the exclusion of everything else in order to uh, make the mind merge with the object, but rather as a way to train ourselves to be able to watch, watch and witness, stay with the observing awareness in the present moment continuously. We 
try to be continuously aware using what we've chosen to use. So say the breath, in breath, watching yourself sitting here, breathing. And we're also, we notice there's thoughts coming up. Okay, we don't follow the thoughts. We keep our minds in the present moment by keeping it with the breath. But we notice there's thoughts, there's emotions coming up, we notice. We hear something, our emotion changes. Smell something, our emotion changes. None of that is going to pull us away from our meditation if our meditation is watching ourselves as we sit here. Or if we're walking, watching ourselves as we walk. Or if we're standing, watching ourselves as we stand. Or if we're lying, watching ourselves as we lie down. We're watching ourselves in order to learn, in order to learn how the body works, how the mind works, because we're interested in this problem we've now recognized of dukkha. And we see that there is actually, or at least we have faith, sadha, trust in the Buddha's teachings for one reason or another, that there is actually a freedom from the experience of dukkha. Dukkha is not existentially inherent in our experience because we can be free of it. This is a possibility which is so precious and so hard to see that if we have any interest at all in this, any inkling of it, it is really worth it to give ourselves in whatever ways we feel we can to its, well, I can say pursuit. But pursuit sets up this thing in front of me that I'm chasing. And what it really is, more than that, is something which is already there. When we start to see dukkha and feel what it means and understand it through observation, through mindful observation of ourselves as we live our lives, so on retreat as we sit, as we walk, as we eat, as we do our chore, our yogi job, as we eat our salads <laughs> and salad dressings, as we wash our dishes or whatever it is that you're doing, as we take our walks, as we wonder what we're supposed to be doing in this you know, open schedule retreat, or however it is for you, we watch, we witness, we stay practicing a continuous awareness of how it is in order to learn through observation. We're not trying to kind of squeeze ourselves into an insight or grab one that's being dangled in front of us. We're watching, we're looking, we're observing, we're listening. And learning in that way, which is natural. We all have the natural capacity to learn in these ways. It's a matter of just being willing to put things down put the distractions down. Physically, we've done a lot of that in coming to this retreat and having this protected space. Verbally, we're doing a lot of that by observing noble silence and we're giving each other the gift of helping each other do that. Mentally, it's up to each of us. We may be sitting here looking all peaceful and inside we're going, wah, 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 wah. that's all right. And it's important to stay conscious and willing to have the intention to let that go. Let it whirl if it's whirling, 
but we can let it whirl on its own. We stay with, and then that's where object of meditation can help us so much. We've chosen something which is not part of the whirling thoughts, which we can just simply rest our attention on as a way of practicing this witnessing of ourselves in the present moment. And we start to learn. We start to see things we didn't see before. We feel good. We feel bad. We feel afraid. We feel overjoyed. We feel all these feelings really quickly in one minute. Or we feel these feelings slowly, like sludge through days, but they change. We learn. We see. When somebody does something, we feel one way. The mind reacts. Something else changes. The mind goes the other way. The mind is something we can observe. We don't have to be the mind. It's not us who's going this way and that way and feeling good and feeling bad. It's what we're calling here the mind. Emotions, a sense of who we are. And that's really grounded in the body. So by using the body in the way that Lumpa has been encouraging us to do, we have an incredibly skillful, powerful way of letting go of the whirling mind, all the thoughts, all the whole world we've brought with us, we keep creating again and again. And if we do start to watch and let that watching deepen, we will see that we are actually creating it again and again every moment. And it's never the same. And we always therefore have the chance of letting it all go. We have this skillful way to detach ourselves from that and rest. We have the body. So we use the body in whichever way it's appearing to us, it's you know, being felt in this moment now. We don't have to feel all the little feelings in the body. We just feel what we feel. We allow the body to help us stay with this watching. We cultivate a continuous awareness and trust that that effort it's really the effort of non-effort because it doesn't have to do with control, doesn't have to do with willpower. Although we do need to have some uh, commitment and determination, it's not a kind of a holding or forcing. It's more a relaxing and a releasing and allowing, a being willing to let go of, to relinquish, to renounce the things we're normally getting caught into and becoming, and instead stay with something on its face of it, which may seem like it doesn't have much to offer. Just sitting here, breathing, the body, the mind doing its thing. But if we commit ourselves to this practice, allow ourselves to be with just this, in this present moment, we learn about how the world is created. We create the world all the time. It's called sankara, sanya sankara in the different designations, but whether we ever learn the Pali words or what those designations mean isn't as important. In fact, it's not necessary as the crucial, essential thing, which is seeing it for what it is. We can use the contemplation of thinking, you know, to help teach us. Our mind won't calm down, fine. Watch, we watch our mind. This is what the thinking mind is like right now. My mind won't come out of the past. Okay, fine. This is, this is me. This is what it's like now, experiencing thoughts of the past. The whole world I keep thinking about is thoughts, feelings, right now. And keep bringing it back to now. So that's why we have 
meditation object we choose, we have a way of kind of holding on to just anchor ourselves in the present moment as we allow our minds to do what they do, allow our bodies to do what they do, allow the world to do what it does, whether it's somebody's making noise next to us or the lawnmower is going outside or it's hot or whether it's just the way we like. Allow all that and yet we stay with the object we've chosen as a way of staying present so that we deepen into this presence and start to learn. We see things we wouldn't have seen before. We don't have to kind of try to find the insight and get it. It'll come just from trusting this observing. We allow that to deepen in ways where we see the mind arises, ah, based on some other condition. It's not something we have to tell ourselves or agree with when we read it in a book or get taught by a teacher. We see, we start to see, you know. I have this thought, I feel this way. Somebody says this word, I experience myself this way. We start to see that we're different people at different times of the day, depending on what's happening. And we trust more and more what you could call the knowing. Puru is this, this Thai phrase one who knows or the knowing. We don't really need to use words like this, but they can be helpful as ways of pointing towards awareness, mindfulness, a sense of the one who can watch, that which in us which knows, feeling is feeling, thought as thought, sensation as sensation, taste as taste, hearing is hearing. And if we start to trust that, it becomes a refuge, something we can trust more. And we can stay with when things are good. That's when we, we really need to establish that because then more and more, and we'll get it wrong many times, but if we keep committing ourselves to this effort, this path, this practice, then more and more, even when things are bad and we get knocked around, we have some place to be. We can trust, we can stay with the knowing. And the knowing is not different. When things are good, that which knows good is just the same as when things are bad, that which knows bad. Good feels good, bad feels bad. In the end, they're the same from the perspective of knowing. That's where we can find freedom. And so that's where we're encouraged to start to look. Do jet in ties, watch the mind. And it's this practice of watching what the mind is doing. It's like citta nupasana in the foundations of mindfulness, mindfulness of mind states. As they arise, we start out mindfulness of the body, breathing, body contemplation, staying with the body. We notice that there's pleasant feelings, unpleasant feelings, and neutral, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. We have mindfulness of vedana in this way then, the different senses, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And we can have mindfulness of citta or mind states, the expanded mind, the contracted mind, the different emotions and perceptions that arise. What seems to be so much who we are and how we are. If we have mindfulness, if we stay with the one who knows this, stay with the knowing, trusting this, then the ones that feel good are just that which we're knowing. And we're okay in the knowing, even though, okay, it's not comfortable. And the ones that 
or it is comfortable, the ones we feel good. And then the ones we feel bad, it's not comfortable, but we're okay in the knowing. We're so focused on being the people we want to be and so identified with it that we can mistake the uh, practice for the generation of the right kinds of mind states. You know, it's a paradox because we, we do need to use conditions. We do need to care about our mind states, whether we're feeling peaceful or whether we're feeling all muddled and confused. It does matter, yes. Try to do things so that uh, we'll feel peaceful and try to refrain from doing things that'll cause confusions and muddle. And especially harmful or damaging mind states, we want to refrain from and turn away from the conditions that cause those. And we need to learn about those conditions. And we do want to do the kinds of things that will result in in skillful and, and good mind states. So we do want to work with mind states. They're creating the right conditions for insight to arise. And yet it's very easy to mistake the mind states themselves for the goal. We think that Nibbana must be just the best mind state, the top supreme one. But it's not a mind state. It's nothing dependent on any kind of condition at all. It's the release of the desire for the identification with any condition whatsoever. So we need to work with conditions so that we can be clear enough to learn, to really see what's happening. And then trust our own awareness, staying with that, following the Buddha's guidance in avoiding that which is harmful and cultivating that which is beneficial. Staying in relationship with others who are practicing this path so that we'll have a better chance of being helped you know, back onto the tracks if we don't realize we've gone off. And we use the fodder of our life experience to practice with. You know, the fuel is whatever it is that we have in our lives. We try to do the best with that. So those of us in robes, I am me, Ajahn, we've chosen to go into the monastery. It's a good way. Um, Not everyone can do that, and it's not going to be the best thing for everyone. Coming to retreat is a really good way. Having a daily formal meditation practice is a really good way. It's going to be uh, extremely helpful and maybe essential for most people, if not everyone. But it's the stuff of all of our life that we're working with. It's not just the time that we're sitting and meditating, whether that's half an hour a day or four hours a day. It's the times when we're feeling upset because we missed the bus, or when we read the news, or when we're feeling afraid because of something at work, or when we're feeling really good because something went well, and we're just flying high, not realizing that, okay, the higher you fly, if you're attached to that, the lower you go when it comes back down. It doesn't sound very good, does it? Just trying to be equanimous, this kind of like, just sounds boring and listless, doesn't it? Just stay in the middle, don't go up when it feels good. Just stay in the middle. It's safer that way. It's not about safety and feeling afraid of feeling feelings. In fact, the more we do this, the more we'll be able to feel our feelings more directly because we won't have to be afraid of (laughs) feeling the strong ones. We'll know that if they come, we won't get carried away. So we feel more, we become more sensitive. And yet, practicing equanimity, practicing staying even in the middle of the ups and downs, 
you know, when we do it with the ups, then we'll be able to do it more easily with the downs. And that allows us, you know, it's again, not trying to create the right kind of feelings in our life. We're not trying to create the right set of emotions, not trying to create the right kind of Buddhist enlightened personalities. There's nothing about that. We're just trying to kind of not cause too much harm <laughs> and then use whatever is here, it's gonna be different for everyone, to learn and see this problem, this particular problem of dukkha. We can focus on all kinds of different things. But that's the one the Buddha said was worthwhile. That's the handful of leaves that he focused on when he said he could teach so many other things, but this was all he was interested in teaching because that's what can release us from this. Oh, it's like a, like a knot we're caught in. And it's a knot we tie every moment again and again and again out of habit. We can unlearn these habits but it's hard. It's not necessarily so complicated. It can be boiled down to very simple practice. But it's hard because we're so addicted. We're basically addicts to the various forms of desire and identification. And that's not a judgment. It's not something to get down on ourselves about and judge ourselves. It's an observation. There is dukkha. And there's a cause to dukkha, which is attachment. It's clinging to that which arises as me and mine. And there is a freedom from dukkha. The path there involves all the factors we've heard about and essentially seeing for ourselves this crucial point of how we create, how we identify with our experience in a way which is not necessary, every moment again and again and again. So trusting the Buddha, that which knows, trusting the Dhamma, the teaching, which will help us stay with that, stay true on that direction. Trusting the Sangha, those who have already practiced and realized this truth for themselves. This is what the Buddha offered, and it's what Buddhism uh, as a tradition and, and practice um, recommends, invites us to use this life wisely. We can be squirrels, you know, enjoying, well, they, they look like they enjoy the spring and storing up our nuts in the winter. They even look like they're enjoying it in the winter, at least when I see them hopping in the snow outside. You can't tell. It's all projection on my part, I know. But they look fluffy and, you know, their brows aren't furrowed or anything. <laughs> and we can do that too. Or we can use our life to realize this precious jewel of freedom and in doing so, offer that gift to others.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.